This is Ashley Kelsch, and you are listening to Life Coaching for Modern Renegades, episode number 55. Welcome to Modern Renegades Podcast. This is a life coaching podcast for the person who wants to learn how to lose themselves in the moment, not life circumstances. Each week, we will explore mental and spiritual practices that will inspire you to ask, seek, and heal. They are for the modern renegade. They are for you. Baby Gates, what's up? It's Thursday. I'm here again. You're here again. Together, we are here. I've got to vent a little bit today. (laughs) My mind has been mulling, stewing, brewing, going over, can't stop thinking. I feel, oh, I feel trickery. Okay, so I've been watching Fargo, the series, not to be confused with the movie. And I've been watching Fargo for a few years now. Season four had just come out. But if you're familiar with the show, then you know every single episode starts out with the words on the screen. It says, this is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place, blank, at the request of the survivors. The names have been changed out of respect for the dead. The rest has been told exactly as it occurred. So obviously, when watching any episode of Fargo, I would find myself thinking, oh my God, I can't fucking believe this happened this way. This is the craziest true story in history. Y'all, and I've told everyone about Fargo. I have my dad watching it. I've had friends. I've told clients. And when I recommend it, I always gush about it being based on a true story. I'm like, oh my God, just wait till you see la 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 la. Well, I just wrapped up season four, and it turns out, according to Fargo, massacres are nothing new. I think I was thinking, or I thought that this has been new. These, like the shootings and high school shootings, which those are over the past 20 some years, have been more new, but massacres in general, I just kind of thought this is a newer thing in the past, you know, like 30, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't thinking too much about it. Anyway, the shit. These massacres have been going on forever. It prompted me to look up the one that they showed in Fargo called the Kansas City Train Station Massacre. And, you know, this realization actually about history, like now in our lifetime, we think that this stuff is all new, but all you have to do is look to the past to know it just keeps repeating itself. Like cancel culture, we as a society have been gathering at town squares to watch people be burned at the stake or watching their heads come off for not thinking the way everyone else does, or committing an act of treason. Perhaps we are slightly less violent and deadly in this day and age about it, but cancel culture is nothing new, if you ask me. And it is still a little bit violent. Anyway, renegades. What happened in real life is not what happened in the show Fargo at all. And so... I was digging deep in the streets of the interweb because I have this information that I think is true. And now my brain's like, we have to reconcile it. It being the difference, the Delta. And as it would turn out, none of it has been real. Aside from like maybe one character or specific crime, the rest was made up fiction. I was like, what in the actual fuck? And it doesn't end there. The Crown, kind of a fan. 
I've been watching it basically like it's a fucking history lesson and this season, which I have yet to start. So don't message me about it. But if you're into it, you then you know that it's about Princess Di and Charles and Britain is all up in arms saying none of this is true. They're demanding that Netflix issue a health warning before each episode. A health warning. I thought that's weird. I could see them saying the events depicted in this series actually didn't happen exactly as you were about to see. So don't go thinking this is real and tell everyone you have a history major in the monarch or like me in Midwest crime. But instead, they want to issue a health warning. As the day went on, I found myself thinking this over again, mulling that I was so quick to believe what was in front of me because of some words I read in the picture I was seeing. And then it hit me this concept of a health warning. I totally get it. Maybe not in the way it's being used against Netflix, but I can totally grasp the concept of just because you can see it with your eyes or visualize it in your mind doesn't mean it's true. I mean, just look at us in the way we think, how it causes us to feel, what we end up doing. 99% of what we are thinking is optional drama. Renegades, I am issuing a mandatory health warning before all your thoughts, your thinking. The characters and storylines may not be true. It could and probably does cause side effects of sadness, resentment, anger, addiction, and unnecessary suffering. Your thoughts about who you are is not your autobiography, but a drama based on true events. And it's causing you low self-esteem and self-harm, even if it's in the form of self-negative talk and behaviors. I remember my first marathon. It was actually in December of 2001, just before Nick's first birthday. And this is really crazy to think about. After Nick was born, I started walking, which turned into walk runs, which turned into a full three-mile run one day. I was so elated after that run that I walked in the front door of my house and announced to my family of two, my baby and husband, I was signing up for the Honolulu Marathon. I would be running 26.2 miles within eight months. So coincidentally, my neighbor had decided to do the same thing. So we were training together. It was amazing. And she was an ICU nurse who worked a night shift. She'd get home at like 6 a.m., would get in a quick run before she went to sleep, or she'd adjust her sleep schedule so we could meet and go off for long runs. At the time, I was a nursing mom working part-time with a husband who was up at 6 a.m. and out the door every morning at 7. So in order for me to train, I had to get up sometimes at 3 a.m. And regardless of mileage, I had to be home in time each morning to nurse my baby, get ready for work, and have everything ready for our sitter. When I couldn't do early morning runs, I'd put Nick in our jogger stroller and head out for 6 to 8 miles watching the sunset, singing him lullabies. I was often wrapped in ACE bandages so my milk wouldn't start leaking. I mean, it was insane. I was the epitome of dedicated at the time. This was my first time participating in any sort of running event or events. I had stopped working out in high school, and rather than lettering in sports, I had lettered in partying and ditching. A healthy lifestyle and competition were both very new to me, but I was way into it. But on Maui, the cool thing was you could just show up at the beach for a 5K in the morning of and register right there. So I would run all kinds of 5Ks and 10Ks just like that. No signing up, just showing up. I didn't have to overthink anything. There were long runs so hard during my training that I would find myself crying on the highway. I had no idea why I was doing it and training for a marathon at this point because it was clear my body couldn't in my mind. And physically, it felt that way. 
But I'd go back out the next day, and month by month, those runs, they got easier. Aside from giving birth, I had never challenged myself like that physically or mentally. Finally, the big weekend arrived. We flew over to Honolulu, checked into our hotel, and we got settled in for a very early wake-up call. My neighbor called and asked me how packet pickup and registration went. And I was like, what? I didn't go. I'm going to go in the morning. And she said, Ashley... I think you have to pick up your race packet the night before at the expo. And I said, what's an expo? On Maui, whenever I've done a race, I just showed up in the morning and got my race bib there. So she, she urged me to call and confirm that I could do that. And there was no answer. So that night, go to bed, slightly nervous, questioning how bad I have fucked up and was hopeful that this was not a problem. There was a pit in my stomach, though. I recall this, like what I mean by how bad I had fucked up. Pit in my stomach. My alarm goes off around three. My husband and I put Nick in his stroller and we head down to the starting line looking for anyone who could help me. At this point, I told my husband that I would just see him at the finish line. And I started running and looking around, literally running, until I found an information stand. I explained to this woman that I didn't pick up my race packet, but I'd registered And I didn't know. And she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. You had to pick it up last night to officially do the race. I said, what does that mean, officially do the race? And she said, well, you're technically disqualified. Your name and race time won't be entered. And I was like, wait, what? No, can I still run it? And she said, sure, but you cannot cross the finish line. Renegades, I was crushed. My stomach turned as I felt this wave of despair and embarrassment just completely flood over me. I felt humiliated and so dumb. It did not occur to me to not do the race though. And so I set off in a sea of 20,000 people who were smiling and cheering. Their excitement filled the air the way my despair consumed my body. Within the first few steps, I started crying as all the thoughts about the work I had done came rushing in. The time away from my baby, the hours spent on the road and not with my family. I felt like I had cheated Nick, mind you, he's 11 months at this time, cheated him of the mother he deserved. My mind was relentless and the motions unmanageable. Pretty soon I found myself having to walk then run because I had developed this horrible side stitch from trying not to cry. My brain offered that everyone cheering was looking at me, looking at me walking as weak and slow. I wanted to tell them I can run 26.2 miles, but I made this huge mistake this morning. I'm not slow. I swear I can do it. And I just felt judged. And this went on forever. Ironically, I'd never considered a time to accomplish the marathon and it never really occurred to me until I was out there walking and running, telling myself how much of a failure I was for taking this long. I vaguely remember coming to the end of the race where everyone was picking up their pace to run the final point two to the finish line, their faces, the crowd, and then me peeling off to the side because I wasn't allowed to cross the finish line. It was then that I saw Chris and Nick in his arms running up to me. His face had more pride than I can explain. And in that moment, I was so scared to tell him what I had done. I didn't want to disappoint him. I looked at Nick and then this other flood of shame just took me over and I literally fell to the ground and started sobbing. Chris was so confused. You're probably confused listening to this. You're like, wait, you you did a marathon. What's all the shame? 
when I told him what had happened, he couldn't understand why I was so upset. That day we walked around Honolulu and everyone was wearing medals, celebrating, talking about it. I couldn't handle it. I was cracking with jealousy and, again, humiliation, despair. Family was calling me to ask me how it was, how I did. I truly believed I let everybody down. I was a failure as a runner, a mother, and a friend. I was a fuck up. The next night, we were with friends having dinner, and my bestie's dad asked me how it went. I felt the need to explain myself to him the way a child does her father when she's trying to justify a bad decision. And he said, wait, you still ran 26.2 miles? And I said, yes, sir, I did. And he replied, girl, that takes moxie. I casually smiled because, true story, I didn't know what moxie meant. <laughs> and it took me years to turn that story into one of moxie and not humiliation. To believe that I do have moxie. Actually, that I am moxie. That's my new belief. That I wasn't a total fuck up. You see, Renegades, this is what we do. We take the events of our lives and without warning, turn them into a drama that is not only not true, but leads us down roads of emotional chaos that cause destruction. And more often than not, further down roads of avoidance and addiction. We spiral in shame. Shame is the worst. Shame needs to be called out as soon as possible. Shame is one part avoidance, another part salt on an already open wound. I've noticed that as soon as I own what I've done, it can't own me anymore. When you're experiencing the shame or the uncomfortable feelings, you want to allow for them, renegades. It means truly sitting with the thought and allowing yourself to grieve or feel embarrassed or angry or like a fuck up. Your brain is going to go into fight or flight mode, which is why you feel paralyzed by labeling it and naming it in your body, seeing it not denying it, you can move from primal brain, survivor brain, into your prefrontal problem-solving modern brain. Literally witness the vibration of the emotion in your body and describe it, narrate it. Is it heavy, light, fast, slow in your chest? Does it have a color, etc., etc., etc.? You gain authority over it. It means actively and consciously seeing your thinking and dissecting it. Putting your thoughts on a paper is the next step, the brain drain to help you find the thought causing the pain and shame. Once you see your story, you get to poke holes in it like a motherfucker. You got to interrogate yourself. If you've been tuning in, then you have heard me deliver the news that we as humans have a base programming software, if you will, installed into our brains to survive. This is the motivational triad. We are designed to seek pleasure, avoid discomfort, and be efficient. It's how we have survived for thousands of years. However, we cannot thrive with this setting because the brain is still seeking pleasure and avoiding discomfort. But in modern times, when we're feeling uncomfortable feelings, our nature is to turn to things that will make us feel better. Add to it the brain's ability to be efficient. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see where this leads us. Oversexing, overeating, overdrinking, overworking out, overing all the things. This is why I value coaching. You have someone else who doesn't have an agenda for you or your life that can see outside of the story you are telling yourself. As someone who self-coaches daily, listens to the work and teaches, I still get coached. I can't possibly see all the angles from my viewpoint. Hence, this health warning. That said, I coach myself daily so that I can train my brain to look for other interpretations of what I'm believing and how they cause me to feel. This is my opportunity to see if I need a health warning, caution, when you think this, it makes you feel sad. And when you feel sad, you don't want to leave bed or talk to anyone causing you to detach further. 
warning. When you think this, you feel deprived. And when you feel deprived, you want to overeat and overdrink. And you then you feel hungover with a side of guilt. And you waste the next day not feeling well or learning how to manage your urges. Do you see what I mean? Renegades, what part of your stories need a health warning? Where are you living out your drama based on real life events? This is your time to inquire, seek, and reveal. Do the work. And until next week, remember, shift happens. Hey, Renegades, if you're finding the tools and concepts I'm sharing each week about your brain on dating, you won't want to miss out on working with me one-on-one. I've just launched my program, Wake Up Before Another Breakup, and in just eight weeks, you won't question if you can trust yourself to date or why you can't find the one. Head on over to modernrenegades.com forward slash programs to learn more about it and how you can work with me. Let's learn how to lose ourselves in the moment, not the man.